why is the death of Jesus such a big deal? Now, I'm not joking, really. Go ahead and text somebody or text yourself. If you do that in a moment, you're going to understand why, and you're going to understand why at the end of this teaching, why I asked you to do that. Text yourself so that you think about it later. I want you to remember this question because I think this is going to impact you in such a way that you're going to be able to tell someone else about it. Why is the death of Jesus such a big deal? You got that, Matt? Matt's working on it. All right. So if Matt's doing it, the rest of you can do it. Matt said that he knew at Calvary this morning, which I was really surprised. And I asked my son, Derek, do you know that song, At Calvary? And he said, no. Like, he didn't want to know it. (laughs) I know that was new for a lot of you, but it just took me to a different place. But anyways, okay, so why is the death of Jesus such a huge issue? And one of the things I've noticed around Easter time, especially, is that the modern media has recognized what a big deal the death of Jesus is globally. So things like the History Channel and the Discovery Channel, they, they do these back-to-back marathons day after day leading up to Easter about the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. Because most cases, they're trying to point to who's responsible. Archaeologically, they're trying to take it apart. What's going on? Who caused this? How could someone of such significance be put to death in this way? Do you know that even the followers of Jesus were trying to lay it at the feet of other individuals? The day of the resurrection of Jesus, it's Sunday, he's walking down a two-track, and he comes across a couple of his followers who are totally confused by what has happened. And he comes alongside them, and they begin describing to him everything that just happened in the city. And he says to them, well, tell me what's going on. What, what did happen? And they said, how could you not know? Have you not heard? And this is their response to him. It comes from Luke 24, 20. The chief priest and our rulers delivered Christ, meaning the Messiah, the Mashiach, to the sentence of death and crucified him. Uh, they obviously are thinking, well, the, the rulers of the land are responsible for this execution. Now, Peter, he was thinking that it should be laid at the feet of his countrymen, people that he lived with in Israel. So he laid it at their feet. A couple weeks later, he's talking to a crowd of thousands of people, and this is what he said, Acts 3.13, You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God has raised from the dead. Well, they're all right. They are all correct. Rome did play a part in it. The leaders of Israel did play a part in it. You and I played a part in it. And you'd say, I wasn't there in the first century. How could I play a part in it? My sin was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross just as much as the Jewish instigators were. But the responsibility doesn't rest at our feet solely. And here's something you won't hear on the History Channel. And here's something you won't see on Discovery TV. The death of Jesus Christ and the fact that He was put on the cross is actually laid at the feet of God the Father. God the Father put Jesus on the cross. And I can validate that for you from Scripture. Ultimately, not because of human intentions and not because of our schemes, what put Him on the cross is God's determination for sin and all who would receive the sacrifice that Jesus was going to provide, 
God carried it out. So Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Acts 2.23, this is the way it's stated here. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. God had worked it out all in advance. There was no surprise. It was no accident. 2 Corinthians says this, He, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf and on my behalf. So God put Jesus on the cross. If he didn't, he's not sovereign. And he is sovereign, so God had control over all these events. So because this story is incredibly familiar to you, here's what I'd like to accomplish this morning. I want to weave together the archaeological information that we have available to us along with the doctrinal reasoning for why this happened. Because the what happened is really important. But the why is even more important. Especially if your hope is that ultimately one day you will stand before God the Father in heaven and tell Him that you are there because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So you better know the reason and the answer for why is the death of Jesus such a big deal. Because I will guarantee you there are many others around society. You can go to the mall today, go to any of the coffee shops and ask people why is the death of Jesus such a big deal and you'll get many different answers. Some will say, well, it wasn't a big deal at all. I mean, why do you even care? Everybody dies. Well, we're going to look at this morning at why it is such a big deal because the crucifixion is the climax of redemptive history. Do you know that Jesus said it was hell's hour? That that period, that 24-hour period of time came from hell. Let me show you that up on the screen. It comes from Luke 22:52. Jesus is about to be rested in the garden. This is his response to those who are coming to arrest him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Do you think he's talking about nighttime? Is he talking about nighttime darkness? No. There's a reason that in the satanic cult and those who worship Satan call him the Lord of darkness or the dark Lord. Because Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to and what he was dealing with. And this power of darkness, this dark hour came from Satan. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, or maybe if you don't, you can grab one in the pew rack in front of you. Turn to John 19. We'll pick up where we left off at last week. John 19 and verse 16. Jesus is about to be turned over to be crucified. John 19.16 says this, So he, and meaning Pilate, so he then handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Gagatha. So Jesus is turned over to the execution squad, which always contained four Praetorian guard. So when you think Praetorian guard, think SEAL team. It's the upper echelon of the Roman army. These are the guys who are the best of the best. And the four praetorian are always assigned to one individual who's about to be executed along with a centurion. The centurion was their commander, the one who was over the top of them. And we're told, according to John 16, that Jesus is bearing his own cross. This is kind of like being condemned to die and having to plug in your own electric chair, which is going to fry you. Jesus is being made to carry his own instrument of death. 
Uh, here's what we understand about the cross piece. And when you look at the cross, you might have the image in your mind that Jesus carried the entire mechanism. That, that would not be the case. In the first century, the upright post was already buried in the ground. What the convicted, condemned individual carried was the cross beam across their shoulders with their arm drooped over the top of it. Uh, we remember that Jesus' back has been shredded as you looked with me last week at the scourging of Jesus. And they peeled the skin from his body. They exposed his bone and his muscle structure. So he's carrying this heavy wooden beam across his shoulders. And he's carrying it to a specific place, the place of the skull. So what we understand as this condemned individual is carrying this heavy wooden beam, they've also got to wear a placard, a sign across their chest. And the sign very specifically says the name of the criminal and what his crime was so that everybody who sees them carrying this beam will have fear in their hearts because the sight of a beaten, bloodied prisoner carrying his own instrument of his death with his sign across his chest will scare everybody else away from ever wanting to commit a crime. So in this setting, we understand that Jesus is making his way away from the praetorian where Pilate rules, outside the city gates, and when he gets to the outside gate, he collapses, physically completely empty of any more strength. He can't carry his own cross. So according to Scripture, they, they seize an individual. They grab a man who's coming into the city, maybe to worship at Passover. We don't know. His name is Simon the Cyrene. Luke 23, 26 mentions him. They seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now there was a heretic who occurred, uh, appeared on the scene um, right around... Uh, 200 to 250 A.D., and this heretic said, well, th this particular individual, Simon of Cyrene, he's the one who was actually crucified. Jesus was never crucified. They let him go. And so it, it's heresy. That's where the word heretic comes from. He presented a heresy. Well, people latched on to that, and they began to spread that around. And on the scene came an individual by the name of Muhammad who really liked that theory and thought, Okay, well, that explains why people saw Jesus after the crucifixion. He was never crucified. And so the Muslims teach that today, that Simon of Cyrene was crucified in Jesus' place, and Jesus was never crucified because they know the New Testament is a historically, archaeologically infallible document. And so they have to come up with a reasoning for, well, why did they write all these things? Well, they'd say, Simon of Cyrene, he was actually crucified. It's heresy. Now, Jesus is going out to this place of the skull. So here's what we know so far. Despite the brutal scourging, despite the fact he's carrying this heavy wooden beam, they make him go out. It gets to where what the Roman Catholic Church calls the fifth station of the cross, which is the gate on the outside of the city, and at that point he collapses. They grab Simon of Cyrene, put it on his cross, and according to what Mark wrote, Jesus has no strength left. The Greek word that they use there is that they picked him up and carried him to the place of Golgotha. It's called the place of the skull probably because of its appearance, a stone structure that looked like a skull, but that's not what's important. What is important is where they took him, outside the city. See, in Jewish tradition, when a sin sacrifice was made on behalf of the people, it was outside the city, not inside the camp, not inside the city gates. 
And Jesus was going to be made sin, as we saw in 2 Corinthians, for the people. So his sacrifice couldn't take place inside the city. It's outside the city. That's why they wanted us to know that. That's why the writer of Hebrews said this, Hebrews 13, 11, For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, John gets into the details of the crucifixion next. Go with me over to verse 18. There they crucified him and with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Now, John's in his 90s when he's writing this. We understand that he's, he's lived a long time. When he writes the book of John, the process of crucifixion is really well known to people. So he doesn't need to write down all the details. Everybody living in the first century knows how Rome kills people. So he says, very simply, there they crucified him without giving us any information. And at first it just seems like, well, it's just kind of factual details. But I will tell you, it is rich in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And that's really, really important. You'll see why in just a minute. But let me get into the specifics of a crucifixion. When the condemned individual arrived on the scene, they forced him to lay on his back and would push the wooden beam underneath his arms, attaching a rope to either one of his wrists and yanking his arms out as far as they could, very often dislocating the shoulders. At that point, they would force him to drink a mixture of wine and myrrh called gall. And the purpose in that was to try and deaden his awareness of the things that were going on so that he would not fight back against what they are about to do, which was to nail him to the wooden beam. So they would take the rope, wrap it around his wrist, stretch it way out, and then run these nails right through the wrist. Probably not through the palm, but just above the bone at the wrist without penetrating the bone, but severing the median nerve. And it would cause excruciating pain for the individual. But his arms are pinned and he can't move. At this point, the feet are tied. And they begin to hoist the individual up on this upright because the upright has steel rings at the top of it and they put rope through it and that's what they use to hoist the individual up with ropes. Getting him up to the top, they take the feet and begin to nail the feet to the cross. Just the thought that the King of glory could die was inconceivable to the New Testament writers. That he would die by crucifixion, utterly unimaginable. That's why Paul wrote what he did in Philippians. Look with me on the screen at Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Paul's a first century writer. He knows what crucifixion is. And it's inconceivable because it's the most diabolical form of death ever conceived in the mind of man. We've only touched on what they do. It was reserved for slaves, for convicted criminals, rapists, murderers, insurrectionists, the most hardened of the hardened. Within the last 10 years, an ossuary box was discovered in Israel. The first one that was discovered with bones inside of a, a, a crucified individual, someone had, who had been crucified by the Roman government. Up to this point, every time they open up one of these actuary boxes, it's got powder inside it. The bones had decayed. But this one had mummified for some reason. And when they opened it up, 
to their shock, what they discovered was that the individual who had been crucified had had his legs completely turned to a 90-degree twist, and the spike went through the ankles on a sideways position. So that the individual spent his entire time on the cross twisted 90 degrees at his waist. Whether or not that's the way they crucified Jesus, we don't know, but in this individual's case, they did. The nails driven through the hands or the wrist, most commonly through the wrist, a rope then was taken off the feet that they had tied him to the stake with, and they tied it around the chest, knotting it in the back so that if the person passed out and fell forward, the rope would catch him and it would jerk him awake again. That was very common. What was also discovered by the Romans is that a person died too quickly if they didn't put a footrest underneath their feet because with their arms completely stretched out, the lungs began to suffocate. (sighs) Trying to draw breath. Too much moisture got in the lungs. And slowly... They would asphyxiate themselves. So what they did is they put a footrest under their feet so that they could lift themselves up to breathe and then let themselves back down gently. By the first century, by the time Jesus was crucified, they discovered that if they put a wooden peg in the upright of the cross at the place where someone would normally sit, a person could temporarily rest themselves only to prolong their life. Because by the time they got to the seat, they had to stand back up again to breathe. The Romans had mastered the art of torture. If you want to read about it later today, you can go to a graphic description in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, chapter 22, King David wrote about what Jesus was going to endure. And here's the remarkable thing. Michael mentioned it earlier. David lived hundreds of years before Jesus before the Roman government ever existed as a nation. Crucifixion did not exist, yet God gave David an insight into the prophecy about what would happen to the Messiah. So when you read Psalm 22, you're looking at a mixture of David's own experience and prophecy. One more detail before we move forward about crucifixion. I told you earlier that when an individual came to be crucified, they forced them to drink wine and myrrh. This is what we're told in Scripture according to Mark 15, 22. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus said he wanted to take the full cup of God's wrath. The wine mixed with myrrh would make you less than conscious and dull your senses. No one refused gall. If you're going to be crucified, it'll take away the pain. In Jesus' case, he didn't take it. He wanted to take the full cup of God's wrath. See, crucifixion was so abominable that even a Roman could never be crucified. It was against the law. So Cicero, a philosopher who lived at this period of time, this is what he said, let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. Nay, not even near his thought, or his eyes, or his ears. But John simply says in verse 18, there they crucified him. With all the information that you just gained, you know what John's thinking at that point. So instead of describing the detail, 
he reserves our understanding for this enormous weight that's about to fall on Jesus, meaning that he's going to bear our sin. Because Jesus knew he was going to die by crucifixion. Let me remind you, you've been through the book of John. We've been studying this for weeks and months now. This is what he said in chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. John 8, 28. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now here's the remarkable thing. What you're going to see in just a moment is God is about to take dominion over even the tree of torture. Even over the cross, God is going to take dominion. So we'll have to ask ourselves as we move forward, because there's a transition happening next. How does a barbaric instrument of torture become the very symbol of everything that is holy? How do we get to the point where we put that on the walls of our buildings, we wear them on necklaces around our necks, some people put them on their rings or have them tattooed on their arms. How does that transformation take place? You're about to see in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So there's a billboard that's going to be put on the top of the cross, an announcement about who this individual is. Typically, it would be the announcement of the offense, the crime. And Pilate has ordered that they make it visible in Aramaic for the benefit of all the locals, in Hebrew for the benefit of all those who live in the Middle Eastern country who speak Hebrew and Greek and Latin so that everyone will look upon it and understand exactly what is going on here. Is this more political games? Is this more of Pilate playing a little bit of mental revenge with the Jews? They forced my hand, I'll get them. Well, here's the truth. Jesus is innocent, and Pilate has no crime to put on the sign. So he looks at Jesus as the title that belonged to him because he had told him, I am a king, and he says, Jesus, the king, is being crucified here. Now, just as Pilate anticipated, it infuriates the chief priest, and they come to him with a stinging insult. Pilate! Make it clear, Jesus claimed to be our king, not that it's true that he really was. What I have written, I have written. Take that. That's what it's going to stay as. Now here's the bigger picture. The ruler over all of Judea, Israel, has now just made a royal proclamation to the three great divisions of the civilized world in Greek, in Latin, and in Hebrew Tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, are coming into Israel that weekend to celebrate Passover. It's the day of preparation. They go by this major thoroughfare outside the city gate where Jesus is being crucified, and they see this mysterious title. And after the events of the weekend, with the earthquake, the sky darkening, everything begins to click, and it fires on all cylinders. 
and they take this back to all the realms of the known world, you won't believe what we saw this weekend in Jerusalem. Announcing to the whole world the kingdom of Jesus. So this one who is stretched out on a cross reigns even over a cross. God has dominion in this moment. Who but God could say the king reigns even here. Now while this argument is going on in the praetorian between Pilate and the officials, John immediately takes us back to the point of crucifixion with verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier. Remember I told you, four praetorian guards. So we've got four parts here, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now the clothing of a crucified individual belonged to the executioners. Very simple. A turban, a head wrap, you see it in the Middle East today, a sash or a belt, an outer coat, his sandals. Those are the four parts they divided up. The fifth part is what we would consider undergarment, a very expensive piece, apparently given to Jesus as a gift, and that's what they didn't want to rip. Mark tells us how they divided it up. Mark 15, 24, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. So you can just see them shaking the dice. They're rolling it out. Come on, snake eyes. Go. I won. Excellent. That's how they're dividing up Jesus' clothing. But once again, John lets us know that God is over all these circumstances in every one of these moments, saying that this fulfills the Scripture. How do we know that? because he referred us back to the actual quote from the book of Psalms. Now, some of you have been to doctors for examinations and you've been to hospitals and you know that when you sit in an exam room, some nurse, well-meaning, comes into you and tells you to disrobe because the doctor will be in for a moment in a moment to examine you. And so they ask you to take your clothing off and put it in a closet and they hand you what looks like a paper towel to put on your body, right? Okay, very thin, something that just barely hides your dignity. And you try and cover yourself up and you sit on the table completely trying to guard yourself. But you feel that sense of exposure. Jesus died naked. Completely stripped of his clothing. On display for the entire world to see. The shame with which he bore my sin is reflected in the Genesis account. You remember when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they committed the first sin? The first thing they realized is they were naked. And they went out and tried to sew together some leaves for themselves. Fig leaves, we're told, according to Scripture. God shows up on the scene and says, how did you know you were naked? Their response was, well, we ate of the fruit of the tree that you told us not to. And sin entered the world. What does our God do for them in that moment? We're told according to Genesis 3, God provided garments for them. So the God who would cover up those who committed the original sin would not 
even cover up himself. He bore sin openly without any hesitation on the cross. And in this moment is what we're told according to Luke when he cries out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's weighing on this moment. Could he have said anything more powerful to reveal the essence and the nature and the character of God? Go with me on to verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. I cannot imagine the indescribable anguish of being a parent at that scene, seeing your son on that upright post, completely stripped of all his dignity, body completely ripped apart. The soldiers are gambling for his clothing. The leaders of Israel are sneering and mocking him. And everyone who's walking by, reading the sign, King of the Jews, how's that possible? And in the midst of this harsh brutality, we come to a screeching halt in verse 26. Because John said, Jesus saw his mom. He's on the cross, and he sees his mom. And he starts to have a conversation one way in, in giving clear direction, helping people to understand in the midst of my most excruciating pain, I'll go to such lengths for you that my love knows no limit whatsoever. That tells me, church, that in the midst of my cross experience, the most brutal times in my life, Jesus is there too. He knows the depth of our pain. He's willing to go to the most excruciating length to rescue us. And in that moment, he cares so much about what we're feeling. He cares more for his mother than he does for himself. So a mom's heart is being crushed in agony, but the silence is shattered because they begin hurling insults at him. Matthew 27 says they begin saying this to him, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. (laughs) Really? I mean, after everything else that he's done, this is the moment you choose that you'll believe in him? See, what's going on here is a temptation. And in my mind, I believe this is probably a greater temptation than that which Satan brought to him in the wilderness. When Satan said, if you bow at my feet, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. This moment right here, can he step up from the cross Could he if he wanted to? I see heads nodding. Absolutely. He had the power to do it. That he chose not to. So the question rises about this, why is Jesus' death such a big deal? Because in the human reasoning mind, we're going to say, hasn't he done enough? Couldn't he really come down from the cross? He's perfectly dedicated himself to everything God has asked him to do. What would be the problem with him doing that? 
Would not tens of thousands of people turn their curses against him into praise? Would they start shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, Hoshana? Absolutely. In that moment, they would. And so the Jewish leaders save a special taunt for just this moment. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Hurricane of abuse begins to build around him. And you have to ask yourself, what stopped him from stepping off the cross in that moment? It's not finished. It's not finished, church. He must bear the death penalty so that you would not have to. So that I would not have to. The sacrifice would be incomplete if he responded to the temptation and stepped off the cross at that moment. So you can change their words. They said, he saved others himself he will not save. He saved others himself he will not save. Why? Because it's only Friday, but Sunday's coming. And we know what happens on Sunday morning. It's incomplete. It's not finished yet. So here's Jesus' response. He's completely silent. No murmur, no response, no words back to them of any type whatsoever. Can you imagine the words that could have formed on his lips? How the sword could have gone forward to desecrate them all? And as only God can in this moment, he transforms the moment because what we learn next, according to what Luke wrote, is that in this moment, the gangster hanging on the cross next to him on his right-hand side recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Will you remember me? All of the insults that everyone was throwing against him couldn't get him to utter one syllable. But when God hears the broken soul to that sound, God responds. A repentant gangster says, I know who you are. And when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Do you remember what Jesus' response was? I tell you the truth. This day you will be with me in paradise. This is a promise. That's the reason John wrote this down, church, for you. For you to remember that when God makes that commitment, He's taking you with Him to eternity. So at some point in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've said, Jesus, remember me. I need you in this moment. Will you take me? Will you rescue me? And Jesus' response is the same to you that it has been to this guy. I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise if you put your hope and your salvation in him. So what you see going on from the cross is he's uttering in one sentence the truth of his ability to reign over everything, even in the circumstances on the cross. This is where it wraps up, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture said, I am thirsty. <laughs> it's kind of an odd thing to put right there, isn't it? Well, you look at it and say, what? After everything we've just looked at, why does he write that detail down? I am thirsty. 
Well, first of all, he knows that everything's completed. That's why John told us that. In meeting with some physicians here in our church, I've talked about the central nervous system in the human body, what's going on at this moment, what's he's feeling. Well, apparently, not just because of the exposure to the weather, but because of everything he's feeling, the shock to the human system. It's generating a raging thirst. Remember, he's hanging out in the Middle Eastern sun. So the soldiers are going to give him a drink you're going to see next. Is it to show compassion or is it to prolong the agony? John does not record for us what we're going to look at next week. The darkness of the sky, the earthquake that opened the tombs, dead people get up and start walking around. John doesn't record that. He lands on two words, I thirst. Strangely fulfilling prophetic picture. Look with me on the screen, Psalm 69, 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. So a man who's been scourged, his arms are stretched out, he's on the cross. (gasps) (gasps) Apparently, from what I've read from individuals who understand the human body, in that moment, the tongue begins to cleave to the roof of the mouth. There's no moisture present. can barely speak let alone draw air in. And so in this dehydrated moment, he needs moisture because he's about to say something that's going to end us for today, something incredibly powerful. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. This is really cheap wine, the low-grade wine. And you're going to say, what is wine doing at the foot of the cross? Well, the soldiers had to carry out this brutal action drunk. Because even the praetorian guard, as hardened as they were, could barely stomach the actions of a crucifixion. So they consumed the wine so they would be drunk as they carried this action out. This is not the stuff they tried to make Jesus drink earlier. This is what the soldiers drank. That's what they're giving him. Cheap, low-grade wine. He's about to make a final report to God the Father. And apparently, this stuff that's being used is going to serve to help clear his throat because he's about to yell. Go with me to the last verse, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, here's where you come in. Beginning of the service, if you had texting capability, I told you to text yourself or your friends. What's the big deal about Jesus' death? If you ask that question out in public today, or you engage in a conversation with somebody in your social world, or perhaps when you go to school tomorrow, you ask people that question, you're going to hear people say, what's the big deal? There is no big deal. His life ended in complete failure. That's why he cried out, it is finished. means nothing. Everybody dies. That's option number one. Option number two is it's a shout of victory because the purpose of God has been triumphed over every single odd against him. So my question for you is which one do you choose? Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. Do you believe it's a shout of victory? If you do, you believe what Scripture says. John, Mark, and Matthew, and Luke all said in this last moment, especially Matthew and Mark, that he screamed it at the top of his lungs. And he didn't use our English words. 
he used this word, the Greek word tetelestai. Tetelestai! Meaning that if he could even yell it, he still had life left in him. He still had lung capacity. And what does tetelestai mean? The end, complete, well, that's appropriate. Here's how it was used in Jesus' day. A young slave girl would come to her master at the beginning of her day. He would assign her work responsibilities. She would go out and carry out her entire responsibilities for the day. At the end of the day, before retiring, she would come back to her master and say, Tetelestai, I finished everything you gave me to do. A priest in the temple examining sheep. The sheep were brought in for the sacrifice. If the sheep passed the inspection, the priest's response back to the owner of the sheep would be, Tetelestai. It's complete. The inspection is done. You can go on through. It's worthy of the sacrifice. Here's the way it was most commonly used in the marketplace. If you were a business owner and someone ran up a bill with you, they had a debt to pay. If you paid the debt, the owner of the business would write across your receipt, Tetelestai, paid in full. That's what Jesus is using here. Your debt is paid in full, church. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the death on the cross took everything away in the way of sin. It's the portrait that God has been painting for centuries to get to this moment. And Christ's completion of the work means that nothing else can be added to it. You can't do one more thing It's God's work and God alone. It's the grace of God. It's not a joint effort between God and man. So we close this morning with Jesus' last miracle. It says that he gave up his spirit in verse 30. He had command over his own life. He retained consciousness right to the very end, authority over the moment, and he said, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly This is that moment. So God has used the schemes of man, the wickedness of Satan, to bring about one purpose. And that purpose is for you. Your salvation. My salvation. Because your God is rich in mercy, church. He is rich in mercy. And that's why he did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32 but delivered him over freely for us all. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to pray. Before you go into that mode, hear me. Don't let this escape from your mind. When you engage into those conversations, why is the death of Jesus such a big deal? Remember this moment. Let's pray. Lord God, we come into this moment asking that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would not quickly forget everything that you did on our behalf. The great length that you went to, Father, to rescue us, to buy us, and to pay the debt in full. So, Father, I ask in power for the brothers and sisters who are in this room who name the name of Christ that you do not allow them to forget what they have learned today, so that when someone talks to them about why the death of Jesus was such a big deal, 
We can respond in authority with boldness and confidence. But you bought us at a great price and you paid for the sin of the world. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.